Can I ask permission from you this morning? Can I do that? You want to know what I'm asking permission for? I want to ask your permission not to rush through what we have to do this morning. I have been excited about what the Lord has in store for us, and I don't want us to miss it. So we're just going to go through this as the Lord wills, and I promise you I'm not going to rush if you give me that permission. All right? Turn, if you will, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and let's dive right into verse 12. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Last week, we were able to see that heartfelt greeting that Paul gives to the Philippian church. And we saw the emotion that he spoke with when he said, As God is my witness, how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now in our passage this morning, Paul takes the opportunity to, opportunity to address the, the concerns that this church has for his welfare. You remember they sent Epaphroditus, a representative of that Philippian church, to be a messenger and a minister to Paul's needs. Very likely they were concerned that Paul could not carry out his mission while being held in prison. And they were somewhat distressed by this fact. From their perspective, and understandably so, they saw Paul's imprisonment for the cause of Christ as an obstacle to his calling, an unfortunate hindrance to the gospel. Now I want to ask you to do something. As we go through our passage this morning, and we're going to unpack this together, I'm going to ask you to have in your mind your obstacle, your impossible situation that you might find yourself in. And I want you to consider that as we go through that passage, this passage this morning. We all have them. The Philippian church had the tendency, as we often do, to see these as hindrances to God's work in our lives not opportunities. And many times, they can become the things that are our greatest source of discouragement. So I want you to keep in mind Paul's perspective this morning as he writes this letter from prison. And then when we finish up, we'll circle back around to your obstacle, your impossible situation. As we continue, Paul explains... What might appear as an obstacle to God's work has actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And the progress, he describes, has an unexpected audience. He says the whole Praetorian Guard. These men were an an elite group of hand-picked Roman soldiers who were given special duties with, with double pay for their efforts. You see, Paul is required to to rent a small apartment there in Rome. And one of these guards was 
physically chained to him at all times while he remained under house arrest. These guards obviously worked in shifts, and, and as time went on, the reputation of Paul began to spread. They learned that he was no ordinary prisoner. Oh, you have Paul tonight. I'm here to tell you that's one interesting man. Hey, when you are there, ask him to tell you about what happened to them on the way here, how they got to Rome, the shipwreck. It's amazing. You won't believe what happened. And if that God, that God that he serves, did what he said he did, that is one powerful God. And that man has a a lot of stories, just like that one. So you won't get bored. Trust me, you won't get bored. And pay attention. He's going to talk a lot about this person named Jesus Christ. When you get done with your shift, come talk to me. I want to know what you think. This became such a topic of discussion that Paul's reputation, the Scripture says, spread throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. 9,000 soldiers. Now, it's likely, not likely that each of them were with Paul specifically, but it is very possible that the reputation of Paul spread throughout this whole elite group of soldiers. They heard and talked about the amazing stories that he shared of, of the God he serves and, most importantly, the man Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross on their behalf. What first appeared as a hindrance to the gospel actually became a source of its propagation to an audience that would have paid no attention to him as he walked the streets of Rome. But here, they were chained to the man, and they couldn't ignore him. I want you to notice that Paul had joy even in this Moment, You can see it in that positive perspective that he takes when he describes his circumstances. And, and I think verse 13 gives us some explanation of that joy and that perspective that he shares. The original text actually reads, so that my imprisonment in Christ may become well known. It, it doesn't read very well, but I think it is what Paul is telling us in these words. He, he's imprisoned in Christ is Paul's way of connecting his current suffering to the suffering of Jesus Christ. There are some definite good things coming out of Paul's imprisonment, but we have to understand that this was not easy for him. He was in prison. He, he was chained to a Roman guard. He could not leave his house. And as we will see later on in his letter, there was this thought in his mind that he may not make it out alive. But even in this situation, Paul recognizes that the way of suffering is often the path that is necessary for God's redemptive work. It was definitely true in the life of Christ. And Paul is learning through this experience that is equally true for him. Paul is participating in Christ's suffering in order to advance the work of salvation in the world. He has joy in knowing that he has been counted worthy to suffer 
for Christ's sake, in order to rescue the souls of men. He's not looking for a way out. He's looking for a way in, through whatever circumstance they may, that may be. You see, Paul's imprisonment is not just a result of his Christian commitment. Paul understands that his imprisonment and suffering for the cause of Christ is actually the means by which he fulfills his calling. He actually takes joy in that fact. And and when there are those who trust in the Lord because of his imprisonment, that joy exceeds beyond imagination. It's just like we talked about last week. Remember what John wrote? There is no greater joy than to see those we love walking in the truth. Especially, as we see in this passage, if they are courageously carrying out the the mission of God, proclaiming the word of God without fear. Paul looks at these things and and recognizes that God can take any obstacle and turn it into an opportunity. He counts it all joy to suffer for Christ, knowing that this is often the path necessary to advance the redemptive work of God. And there is no greater joy than to see the fruit of his labor in in the bold faith of those who have come to believe the message of salvation in Christ alone. Okay. You still thinking about your obstacle? You still have that impossible situation in your mind? Don't leave it. Let's continue on. Verse 15. Paul writes, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. So Paul describes two groups here. The one thing that they have in common is that they both preach Christ. From there, their paths diverge. The easier ones are the ones that preach Christ out of goodwill, that... They do so in love, knowing that Paul has been appointed for the defense of the gospel. Their goodwill tells us that they are others-focused. Their love gives evidence of their self-sacrificing nature, because that's the only way true love can be expressed. They're humble, and they give support to Paul, and their message is unifying as they stand together with him for the gospel. I think it's very likely that some of the people that Paul has in mind as he describes this group are those who have come to faith because of his message. Those that are preaching Christ with courage and without fear. But this second group is a little more difficult to identify. Some suggest that this group that opposes Paul is made up of Unbelievers, people like the the Judaizers who constantly dogged the steps of Paul. This is supported by the fact that there's no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. But the fact is, the only characteristics that are used to describe them, envy, strife, selfishness, impure motives, are, are actually deeds of the flesh. 
there are others who would argue this can't be unbelievers or people like the, the Judaizers because Paul does not condemn them as he does in other places in the New Testament. In fact, later on in this very same letter, he seems to identify what appears to be a different group of false teachers, and he calls them dogs or evil workers. It doesn't appear to to be the same group as in our passage this morning. In Galatians, he he identifies those who are teaching a different gospel as, as those who are distorting the true gospel. And he says to them, they are preaching to you a gospel that is contrary to what I have shared with you. And for that reason, let them be accursed. Those are some strong condemnations. But you don't see that in our passage this morning. In fact, the implication is that although their motives are wrong, the gospel message they preach is right. So let them preach. Perhaps these were people like Job's friends who looked at Paul's imprisonment and said to him, hey, look, this wouldn't be happening to you if you were in God's will. Why would you want to appeal to Caesar? You're only making it worse for all of us. We've got Rome covered. Carry out your mission somewhere else. The fact is, no matter how hard we try, we cannot identify who this group is with any certainty. What we do know is that unlike those who stood with Paul, this group who was opposed to him was was not selfless. They were selfish. They were more concerned about protecting their own reputation than actually sacrificing for the needs of others. They were filled with pride. And pride always causes disunity, not unity. I don't know about you, but this is somewhat somewhat shocking to me to recognize that there may be those who have all the wrong motives who may actually communicate the right message. They may actually preach Christ accurately, but their pride will ultimately cause division in the body and not unity. Now, I want us to consider why Paul chooses not to speak against this group of people. Most importantly, it appears that he he chooses not to speak against this group of people because what they are saying is actually true. I cannot imagine that Paul would not condemn any group that distorts or disrupts the gospel of Christ. It appears that these people are not anti-Christ, they are anti-Paul. And so Paul is willing to, to take the hit from these opponents by responding in silence in order to avoid any distractions to the gospel message that he's been given the opportunity to speak to a captive audience quite literally. Paul's goal was to to preach Christ, not fight his opponents. And as long as their gospel message was undistorted, he let it go. Even if they didn't say exactly what he thought they should say, he let it go. Paul understands that God is not limited by man's competence or even their exact 
correctness. And Paul is teaching us what it looks like when, when humility prevails. When we are less concerned about our own reputation and being right and more concerned about the reputation of Christ and what is true. You see, Paul successfully diffuses this situation by simply not giving it any attention. But we also need to remember, he's under house arrest. He really can't do anything about this, even if he wanted to. Every word he speaks against those who oppose him is one less thing that he can speak about Christ. Perhaps one of the reasons Paul responds the way he does is because he chooses not to be distracted by the things he cannot control. Right now, he is imprisoned for the cause of Christ. His message has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. There are people trusting in the Lord because of his imprisonment who have far more courage to proclaim the word of God without fear. There may be those like this who are standing with him, preaching Christ out of love and goodwill, building unity within the body of Christ by their humble heart of service. That's what is good and right and true. And that is what Paul can, in fact, influence. And so that's where he sets his mind. Not his opponents, who only serve as a distraction that deserves no attention. All right. So let's circle back to your situation. Your obstacle that may exist in your life. I want you to to consider that impossible situation that you may find yourself in. And based on what Paul said in his circumstance, let's consider how God might turn your obstacle into an opportunity. And let me clarify what I mean by by opportunity. A, A biblical opportunity would be any situation that God might use to carry out his perfecting work in our lives as he promised. So turning an obstacle into an opportunity is just another way of describing the work of God's redemption in our lives. With that in mind, one of the first things that is necessary in order for us to see God's hand at work in our life is don't close your eyes. Don't close your eyes. When we're in a difficult place, don't just grit your teeth and try to get through it. Open your eyes and see how God might actually reveal himself in the midst of the storm. He's known to do that, isn't he? Think about how easy it would have been for Paul to look at his imprisonment as an obstacle and say to himself, I just need to get past this. (laughs) And then I can get on to the work that God has actually called me to do. Guard after guard would have walked into his house and every time they left, he would have missed another opportunity to see the greater progress of the gospel. And if this were the case, if that were the case, wouldn't you agree how it would be much easier for Paul to have become discouraged by his circumstances? Not only that, what about those who were looking to cause him distress in his imprisonment? Don't you think that their attacks would have been much more hurtful if Paul didn't see God's hand is in in his imprisonment for the cause of Christ? I think so. 
And so think about your own life. How many times have you and I missed out on something God might want to teach us in the midst of of a difficult circumstance because we're just too busy trying to get through it? In order to see God turn obstacles into opportunity, we must first be willing to open our eyes and look to, to see God's hand of redemption in the midst of our circumstance, no matter how difficult that situation may be. But to do that, you have to be willing to face your fears. This is one of the things my brother Jay taught me during his battle with cancer. I think he told all of us at one time, didn't he, Don? You have to face your fears. At first, I really didn't understand what he meant by that statement. But as time went on, it became very clear. As I mentioned to you before, the faith that my brother demonstrated during the time he had cancer was almost unexplainable. It was almost unexplainable. Like guards in Paul's prison, medical staff and visitors would file into Jay's room and they would walk out and they would say, that's not what I expected. That is not what I expected. People would go in hoping to try and lift Jay's spirits. But when they left, their spirits were the ones who had been lifted. He had such a strong conviction that God was in control and that peace invaded his life. You were not going to get out of his room without him telling you about the assurance that he had of God's love for him. Over time, I began to understand about Jay's mysterious comment of facing your fear. I witnessed firsthand that Jay was able to experience the peace of God by refusing to let fear reign in his mind. He faced his fear by clinging to the promises of God and in holding very loosely to anything that the world may offer. And as a result, he became increasingly bold for Christ. And the life that he had in him is where he found his greatest strength. He found the peace of God in his heart by refusing to let fear reign in his mind. That's what he meant. So don't close your eyes. Face your fears and be bold for Christ. And another thing that's important for us in our ability to see God's perfecting work in our life is to avoid being distracted by the things that we cannot control. We already identified that there was a lot of stuff going on around Paul while he was in prison that was intended to cause him distress. How easy it would have been for him to to spend all of his energy defending him against what I am sure were false accusations. But what good would it have been for Paul to enter into all those debates? None. And here's why. Because no matter how hard he tried, Paul could not control what other people said about him. He just couldn't control it. So instead of being distracted by those things that he could not control, 
he focused on the one thing that he could control himself himself and how he responded in his own situation and that's really true for all of us isn't it life really is about 10 percent what happens to us and about 90 percent how we respond to it and the more attention we give to those things that we cannot control the greater the chance that we will miss seeing god's redemptive hand in our circumstances We must train our eyes to look for the miracle of God's redemptive work in our life. I still remember Kendra's testimony. If you were here in December, you'll remember her telling you about the prayer that she had for her son, Colby. She found herself in a situation where her son, who she loved very much, was growing growing up without a, a positive male influence. It was a need in Colby's life that she, as his mom, could not meet. And so she prayed for him diligently, as any mom would, and all the while assuming how God might answer that prayer. But then God did something unexpected. He introduced them to a group of sheep. And it was through the experience of of raising sheep that Kendra was able to see the miracle of God transforming the heart of her little boy in ways that she never dreamed were possible. Who would ever thought that God would use a bunch of dirty sheep to, to create within Colby a heart of a man who desires to follow him? What if she stopped looking for a A miracle of God's redemptive work in her life? What if Kendra was too distracted by her view of how she thought God would need to answer that prayer? Maybe she would have missed it. And instead of seeing the beautiful miracle of God redeeming, she'd still be staring at an obstacle. Finally, in order for us to see God turn these obstacles into opportunities. I believe it's important for us to always look at life through the eyes of the gospel. And when I talk about the gospel, I have in mind the entire plan of salvation which reaches its climax at the cross. The place where God took the most evil intent of man, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, And he turned it into the means by which we are saved. So that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life eternal. We are redeemed through the cross. And that is the heart of the gospel. But all of history before that point and all of history beyond that point is the continuing work of the gospel. God's redeeming hand in the lives of those he created in ways that ultimately bring him the highest glory. That is the gospel. And it loudly proclaims that God is sovereignly in control of all things at all times for all eternity. Keeping the gospel the main thing means that we view all of life through this lens. So much so that that our strongest conviction is that there is nothing, 
nothing that we will face that is outside of his power to redeem. His sovereignty knows no limits. God has the ability in any circumstance you face to fulfill his promise to perfect you until the day of Christ Jesus. So open your eyes. Face your fears. Be bold for Christ. Look expectantly for the miracle of God's redemptive hand and don't be distracted by what you cannot control. View life through the lens of of the gospel and know that His plan of salvation is unfolding every single second of every single day. And His work in you, listen to me, His work in you is a part of that plan. We serve a redeeming God. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful for this magnificent truth. Boy, it's so hard to be in situations that seem impossible, that we just don't understand why we would find ourselves here, and to see within them your redemptive hand. So would you please, in your grace and mercy, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of you, the God we serve, redeeming all of life for your glory and good purposes among your people. We believe that truth. Help us to live it to the fullest. And experience because of that the joy that we see so evident in the life of Paul. May that joy grow and strengthen in our life as well. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.